0: Degressions. This is Spencer Case. And so now I present the second part of this two-part series on Singer's argument concerning poverty assistance. This one featuring Jim Skidmore. As you'll recall from the intro to the first part of this series, Jim was originally supposed to be in on the conversation with me and Travis. There was just supposed to be One episode. But because of technical difficulties, I decided to split this up into two separate conversations. The second one, building upon the first one. So Jim had listened to the conversation between just me and Travis before we recorded this. And I think actually this works out really well. I quite enjoyed this conversation and I think you're going to as well. Despite the fact that we had Still, some audio issues. We recorded it at my parents' house in person, and we just couldn't get into a completely distraction free environment. It's just the way of life. 20 minutes in or so, we moved to a different room, and there's a bit of an echo. I did what I could, I can't quite get rid of it. But nonetheless, it's a very interesting conversation. We end up talking about the difference between a lower and a higher standard. And I guess that's appropriate because although we're not able to Satisfy the standard of optimality in terms of podcasting, it definitely satisfies us. Before I begin this, though, I'm going to tell you one anecdote that pertains to the subject matter that I've thought about a lot over the last uh, 15 years now. When I was an undergraduate, I spent a semester in Morocco in the fall of 2007. And I traveled a lot on the weekends and sometimes even during the school week, I would skip class and travel. And one thing that I knew from traveling in Morocco, and I had been warned in advance from my lonely planet travel guide, and I think maybe other places on the internet is that the begging in Morocco is particularly aggressive and in your face in a way that is uncommon in most developed countries so for example people would come right up to you i've had people even grab me by by the hand and demand money and i actually pushed a guy away and threatened to hit him if he laid hands on me again and people would also without actually touching you they would go up to you and like show you their wounds lift up their shirt or whatever it is and show you that they have some wound or hold up you know x-rays that purport to show that they have cancer or or something like that show you their de- deformed limbs sometimes and would would just get in your your face and so this this happened at bus stops you know if you were on a bus between two places the bus would stop and some people would come on and you could buy snacks or what have you and then other people would come on and and they would they would show you their wounds and just sort of especially if you if there were not very many white people on the bus they would go straight to you and show you their wounds and look at you like are you not going to help me you greedy son of a bitch i couldn't stand this i couldn't stand this you know i hated this so much i don't even particularly like you know, encountering beggars in the United States where it's it's less aggressive than that. I try to be generous with my money in terms of giving to charities and things like that, but people coming up and accosting me and uh, demanding it or even requesting it, I really don't like. I remember one particular trip. I was coming back from a place called Chefshawn. This guy got on the bus at one of these stops, and I, I was out of money. I had a Card, but there was no ATM around. And I had just enough money to get myself a snack. But this guy was on first before the snack people came up. And so I had just enough money to, and I was hungry. I hadn't eaten anything. This guy on crutches, and I think he had like a cast around his arm. And he just came in front of me, went straight to me, and put out his hand like right in front of my face and just had this sort of blank expression. And I just kept my head down in my philosophy book, and I wouldn't look up at the guy. I was pissed off. I don't like being accosted like that, you know? I sort of felt like, screw you, I'm hungry, it's my money, get out of my face. But I've thought about that a lot, and I find myself wishing I had just given him the couple of dollars that I had. And a few years later, when I spent time in, in Egypt for my Fulbright, I made a point of carrying around small change with me so that, you know, if somebody, yeah, there were beggars there and, and, and in some places they were pretty aggressive, though rarely as aggressive as in Morocco. I would make a point of always giving them something, even if it wasn't very much. They weren't going away empty handed. You know, I guess I decided after that, that, um, that was the policy. Just don't allow anyone to go away empty-handed if they're asking you for money and presumably need it. And you know, you can never be sure. Some of these people in Morocco, you can be sure that they need it. They can, you can see that they're disabled. You can see that they are wounded, injured somehow, that you can see they're in really dire straits. But even if you're not sure, I mean, if I mean this guy could have been faking it, I couldn't have seen you know, what his medical condition was just by looking at him. It's still true probably that he needed that money a lot more than I did. I could have sucked it up and gone hungry for another three hours and it wouldn't have killed me. I wouldn't have been comfortable, but it wouldn't have killed me. But I thought about that a lot and thought about how there's no real place where I, I feel completely comfortable as far as giving goes. Having thought about this, having read these articles, having had these conversations, having had these experiences, there's no real place where I feel completely comfortable. You know, I don't feel on one hand that I am duty bound to give my last penny. You know, if you were to take the singer argument to the extreme, but I do feel that I owe something to these people. And, um, I try to strike a balance and, uh, it's probably not the right balance. But I think if you're worried about striking the balance, that's probably a step toward a more reflective lifestyle. So those are my opening thoughts. And now I give you my conversation with Jim Skidmore. All right. And this commences part two with Jim. Uh, Sorry, Jim, we wanted to have a three-way conversation, but (laughs) we're getting two two two-way conversations.
1: Very good. Yeah. Sorry, it didn't work out, but... Uh, the mysteries of internet connections.
0: All right. So I want to begin with this story and then you can take it wherever you want. But I remember several years ago, my grandpa asked what I wanted for Christmas. And I said, I really think I have enough material possessions. So you can just donate whatever you're, you're going to spend on me to highly effective charity. He's like, wow, I'm so proud of you, but what do you want? (laughs) yeah
1: i mean it seems like in that case he he didn't believe you right you really did want that but maybe he was thinking you were just saying that whereas that really was what you wanted right yeah i think it, it would be good if we normalized charitable contributions as gift giving yeah, I don't know where what you want to talk about. One of the things I definitely wanted to emphasize now that I've listened to your and Travis's conversation, Travis wasn't allowed to, to brag about his own paper, but I just want to emphasize how good that paper is. I've been teaching Singer's Article for a lot of years now, almost basically every year, sometimes multiple times, multiple sections, and I always try to assign an opposing view. And I've cycled through so many articles, and it's really hard to find one that even has a good chance of hitting the mark. I think Travis's paper does such a good job of putting pressure on that key second premise. And as he mentioned in your discussion, I think... Travis's article is a good example of the best kind of criticism. Where Singer's argument is most vulnerable is in his claim that that second moral principle is common sense. Singer wants it to be the case. Everybody knows that he's a utilitarian, but he doesn't want to assume utilitarianism because then we just have a debate about utilitarianism. So he wants to ground that second principle in something like common sense morality and what Travis's paper, I, I think shows very clearly is that that second principle is not a common sense principle where exactly that leaves us with regard to the conclusion then is a separate matter. In any case, uh, if there are any anthologizers people out there writing creating contemporary moral problems anthologies you should you should anthologize Travis's paper it's really good the other thing that i think was really helpful about that discussion is clarifying this distinction between isolating and focusing attention on the key normative premise that second that second premise versus the empirical premise and i think in thinking about how to respond to the argument that distinction is very helpful one thing that i that i was thinking about as i was listening to your and travis's conversation is so much attention gets put understandably on the very strong version of the moral premise that singer defends if travis is right which i think he is it looks like that principle is, you know, vulnerable to objection, at least from the perspective of common sense. What I think sometimes gets less attention is just how big a gap there is between the very, de- the very demanding character of that second principle and sort of what we might call the moral status quo, like of just how little Western <laughs> countries really do. And so one of the things that I wanted to discuss with you, I think focusing on the empirical premise, right? The premise we can act to prevent, like there's something we can do. One way of seeing why I think the status quo is vulnerable and probably unworkable no matter what we think of that second premise is you've either got to accept that empirical claim or reject it that is the empirical claim is there is something i can do to prevent suffering and death from poverty if i reject that i think singer responds and says on the one hand if you reject that then you're stuck with the view okay there's absolutely nothing that i can do at all that would i think raise one a lot of interesting weird consequences about how we respond to the way people volunteer and donate to charity it looks like it might follow that people are acting wrongly or at least stupidly Foolishly. And that doesn't exactly meet with common sense. If I encounter someone who I discover has donated $1,000 to Doctors Without Borders, it seems somehow weird to say, oh, that's equivalent to lighting $1,000 on fire. That seems to be a weird consequence. One thing that Singer has emphasized is that even if you thought there was absolutely nothing we could do currently, that still probably wouldn't justify the moral status quo. Presumably the reason, if it's true that there's nothing we can do currently, the reason has something to do with our ineptitude, our current ineptitude. Probably we would, you know, I would have an obligation to be donating resources to empirical research that will get better at finding ways to effectively fight poverty without causing harm or i might have an obligation to save my money because even if it's true that right now i can't do anything it's unclear that i have good reason to believe that in 10 years or 20 years there'll be no chance for me to do that so i think if you deny that empirical claim it's unlikely that denying it will be a way for you to to justify doing nothing. On the other hand, I think if you accept the empirical claim, right? I was looking up givewell.org's current estimates and, you know, I can't vouch for these estimates. I think they do try to be very careful and very conservative so that their estimates are not propaganda, but they conservatively estimate that a $5,000 donation to an effective charity, one of their prioritized charities, on average, can be expected to save someone's life. If something like that is right, that's sort of the, the current version of the empirical claim. So for $5,000, I can, in expectation, save someone's life. Here's the question. What does common sense morality imply regarding my obligation to spend $5,000 to save someone's life? I think, again, Travis has, has argued really well that common sense morality does not imply that I have the obligation to devote my entire life. And common sense morality doesn't defend Singer's very strong, strong principle, but what does it imply? And it does seem, here's something that I think is interesting. I think most of us in the Western world, when we spend $5,000 on something that we don't need, I've been thinking in my current bourgeois life about my kids have taken piano. And it doesn't cost $5,000 a year, but they've taken piano for several years now, two kids. It has amounted to, you know, a few thousand dollars. Piano lessons are not something that anyone needs, right? It's clearly in some sense a luxury, right? It's a valuable thing, but it's not something that they need. If the empirical claim is true, though, Here is an empirical fact. Every time I've spent $5,000 on piano lessons for my, my kids, in expectation, someone has died whose life I could have saved. Right? That's an empirical claim, not a normative claim. And it does seem to me that one piece of evidence that common sense morality does not justify that expenditure is that i think most of us try to ignore or distance ourselves or or put away that empirical claim that is if that empirical claim were fully consistent with common sense morality, when I spend five thousand dollars, someone dies who otherwise could have lived, but it's morally okay. If that were moral common sense, you should, I and other people should not
0: have a tendency to not want to think about it. In support of what you're saying, without mentioning any kind of Singer principle, if you were to just ask somebody, or you just confront somebody with this, you could have saved somebody's life. But instead, you went on vacation. Yeah. They would feel the need to go on the defensive. They wouldn't look at you blankly and say, so? And your point is, they would feel defensive, which means maybe they didn't do something wrong, but there's the thought that maybe they had. And that thought is worth addressing. In other words, they're uncomfortable with the idea that the empirical claim could be true. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. On the other hand, I don't know that discomfort means that what they're doing is necessarily wrong because there are all sorts of perspectives that it might not be good to take on your own life. And thinking that, you know, in 100 years, I'll be dead and nothing that I'm doing now matters, that could be true. It's probably true about most things and maybe everything in your life. It's maybe not a good perspective on your life. It's maybe too distant from your immediate circumstances. If that's a good reason to put the one thought out of your life, it might be a good reason to put the other thought out too. Because I think it could be true that you just get dizzy when you try to think of your life from the perspective of the, the whole universe and how much value you're adding to it and that kind of thing.
1: I think that's right. And I, th- I think actually there are good reasons. I mean, it's in some sense paralyzing and debilitating we can't live our daily lives constantly thinking about, okay, wha, what could I be doing instead? What could I be doing instead? What could I be doing instead? And so I agree that there are good reasons not to be always thinking about whose life I could have saved with this money that I'm spending. Still, I do think, though, that if it turns out to be true that It's not just something people don't think about. It's something they really don't want to think. They want to avoid thinking about it. And when presented with it, they want to push back against it. What I think that does suggest is that if our common sense moral views could justify the current status quo, we should be able to embrace the empirical claim and say, yeah, every time I spend $5,000 on You know, if I've spent $5,000 on alcohol the last 10 years, that could have saved someone's life instead. But that's morally okay. The fact that I think we don't want to do that, it's not just that we don't want to think about it. When presented, we want to push back against it or avoid that empirical claim, I think is some evidence that... Common sense morality is not consistent with the current status quo. So I think the upshot of this is Travis's article does a really good job of highlighting the kind of utilitarian foundations of Singer's version of the principle. But as I know he would agree, it shouldn't reassure us that the current status quo of, you know, most of us in the Western world doing almost nothing can be justified.
0: So, as you know, in my book, that's going to be submitted in in a matter of hours. (laughs) I talk a lot about common sense. And G.E. Moore's notion of common sense is defined in a really, really narrow way to mean things that are so central that to give them up would alienate you from any community of inquirers. So it's a, quite a narrow set of things, like the belief that there are other minds and sorts of things like that. So I don't think common sense understood in that kind of really restrictive way really has anything to say about the extent of our obligations to others. So it's common sense in a looser term of just you know what most people – Or most people in our communities or culture believe. And then I think, as you say, I don't think common sense in that sense takes one side or the other really strongly. You find conflicting intuitions that are not reconciled. Singer is good at bringing attention to that. I mean, that's the main thing I think that his article does. It exposes – that there are some cases where you think that you have these really strong duties of beneficence, but you don't apply that everywhere you could. And there's more that you could say about this, right? You could you do like an evolutionary debunking argument where, you know, if you think of the history of humanity from, you know, Neanderthal days on, if you think about what would we need morally to do well? I don't know, 20,000 years ago, it's really only the impacts on your immediate kin that you have to worry about. And so it wouldn't be surprising if our moral intuitions were geared for that kind of environment, right? And you think it would be very difficult to appreciate the value of, you know, expanding the moral circle. And there wouldn't be much reason for people to think about this and to change their minds and their you know, culturally shaped moral intuitions by reflecting on expanding the moral circle when you can't do much beyond your immediate environment anyway. And you might think of this as an emergency. So we normally think that in emergencies, what's expected from people might be quite different. Um, Mm -hmm. So like the, the pond example is so effective because it's an example of an emergency But what if you think of a species long emergency? That emergency could be a century long, right? Or it could be longer because it's still, from the perspective of the entire lifespan of a species, it's a single episode. And it might just be, the way we should think of this is that we happen to be in a species emergency because we're right at the moment where we have the ability to impact people on the other side of the world. And we haven't advanced to such a point that we have gotten past global poverty and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And this gets to another issue that I wanted to talk about, which is how do we deal with the fact that other people aren't doing their share? And I take it Singer's response here is to appeal to precisely the idea of something like an emergency situation. Some philosophers have criticized Singer's argument and tried to develop more modest principles. One way of trying to establish a much more modest obligation to do something with regard to global poverty is to say, okay, my obligation is to do my share. So we think about, okay, what would my share be if everyone did their share? And it looks like If everyone did their share, our individual obligation would be really quite small. It might be in the hundreds of dollars per year in terms of donation. So the only reason it's demanding is because other people aren't doing their share. Now, Singer's response is, look, yes, it's true that if everyone were doing this, our obligations would be much less. But that's not the actual situation that I face. Instead, I face something like an emergency. And in an emergency situation, it seems plausible that I have an obligation to make up for the fact that other people are doing their share. So Singer says something like, okay, what if there were 10 drowning children and 10 people? One of them is me. The other nine are doing absolutely nothing. Would it be morally okay for me to pull out one of those children and say, okay, I'm done. That's enough. I've done enough. I've done my share. And he rightly says, I take it. No, you have the obligation. It's true that if everyone were doing their share, you would only have to pull out one child. But that's not the actual situation you face. And so you have the obligation to do more than that. Now, again, how much more do you have to spend You know, the rest of your life pulling out children is in question. But I do think I agree we should be careful about how we think about the status of our intuitions. So when I was talking about moral common sense, yeah, I was just talking about something like the way most people intuitively morally respond to various kinds of circumstances and I think we should expect our intuitions to be theoretically messy with lots of potential contradictions. We should probably expect them to be more reliable in certain kinds of situations rather than other kinds of situation. And we shouldn't hold them to be sacrosanct. On the other hand, I think in some sense, yeah, the, f- the force of Singer's argument at least partly comes from that drowning child case and our very strong intuition that in that kind of situation right, I mean Travis talked about this, everyone who's taught Singer's article realizes everyone agrees <laughs> like we don't have students who say oh actually you, you don't you don't have any obligation to save that drowning child we don't have students who think that and in fact, students are adamant that you do have that obligation. So, yeah, what what is that what does that Im- imply? I think I, I guess I would say this. It seems very likely to me that back to this empirical claim, right? Is it true in expectation that every time I spend say $5,000, someone will die whose death I could have prevented had I devoted that $5,000 to an effective charity. Is it true? If it's not true, I think it's unlikely that we can easily morally justify the moral status quo of doing almost nothing. If it is true, I think it's also clearly difficult to justify the moral status quo. And so then you're left with this question. Okay, in a sense, we've got an inconsistency. On the one hand, we have these moral intuitions, but on the other hand, we're doing almost nothing about this circumstance of global poverty. In principle, it's true that we could resolve that tension by just saying, oh, well, let's revise or dismiss our intuitions and maybe rethink whether we are obligated to save drowning children in ponds or something like that. That could be the view, but I take it it's difficult, I think, to
0: do that. One other thing to add to what you're saying, it's going to be... Just like before, I'm going to give with one hand and take with another. (laughs) But to give with one hand, it would also be easier if everyone were were giving this, not just that what your fair share would be would be less, it would also be psychologically much easier because you know that there's a baseline of social expectation around 10% or whatever it would be.
1: No, that's exactly right. This gets to the other issue that I think was interesting in your discussion with Travis. One thing I wanted to say... I think Travis was exactly right. To defend Singer, you were worrying that Singer may be deceptive in, on the one hand, saying, here's what we ought to do, but then advocating a different public standard. And I took Travis to be defending at least Singer's honesty on this question. And I think that's right. As far as I can tell, Singer is very clear that We really do have two distinct questions. On the one hand, what ought I to do? What should I do? What morally should I do? And that's where his answer is, the demanding one. And then we just have this different question. It's not the same question. It's a different question. He's very clear in a way. You know, I think you could argue that Singer may be damaging the movement and emphasizing... The what ought I to do question as much as he does. One of the interesting differences between Singer's work and other effective altruists, you know, effective altruists like Will McCaskill, is kind of the effective altruist movement, at least in my understanding, tends not to emphasize much at all what our obligations are. And do we have these very demanding obligations, And instead, they tend to emphasize, here's how much we could accomplish if we did more. Isn't it amazing how much we could accomplish? And so you might think for sort of public relations purposes and movement-building purposes, maybe it would be better for Singer really not to talk much about this demanding account of what ought I to do. But he does talk about you know. And every time he writes on this, he does... Hold the line, I take it, on this question. No, you ought, to, you know, he defends this demanding principle. But then there is this second different question. Okay, what should the public standard be? What public standard should we advocate and hold people to? And there he has come around to holding the view that the public standard should be much less Demanding, And this connects with the idea, I think, part of the reason why the public standard should be less demanding is that given the fact that people are doing so little, it is psychologically difficult, right? This is true in the area of, of veganism and meat-eating as well. It would be so much easier to be vegan if we lived in a culture where... You know, most everything, or even the majority, or even a s- substantial minority was vegan because then there would be all kinds of vegan options. And so it's psychologically much more difficult. And arguably, that does have implications for how blameworthy someone is for failing to be vegan. Similarly, the fact that it's psychologically more difficult to donate more of my resources, given the fact that no one else is, does arguably have implications for how blameworthy I should feel. And I take it singers we view is that issues of praise and blame are connected to this question of the the public standard.
0: Okay. I think, You and Travis have made a good defense of singer's honor here, although I think even if it's not a matter of honesty, I think there is a theoretical tension here because I tend to lose intuitive grasp on what the moral law is if it's this disconnected. Because I can understand praise and blame and moral obligation diverging to a certain extent. And I understand the public standard morality distinction too. In fact, I think on abortion, I would say something similar. I would say I'm I'm pro-life and pretty strictly pro-life, but not absolutely. But I do also, I think maybe to the chagrin of some of my other conservatives, I think I'm willing to compromise on what the law should be. I don't want to be an absolutist in terms of what the law should be, putting it all the way down to conception or something like that, because there's just so much disagreement. It would end up destroying the country if we try to impose that kind of standard on people publicly. So there I see a difference. It's completely consistent for someone to be pro-life and say, yeah, but we should allow abortion for the first 10 weeks or something like that. But it would be weird to hear a pro-lifer say that it's actually murder straight from conception, but we should go on talking about it being just fine until the third trimester or something like (laughs) that. Because then I would think – I would really question whether the person meant both of those things at the same time. There's just, there seems such a divergence here. And there are other cases you can think of too that might shed different light on it. So imagine you've got a brother who is a recovering kleptomaniac and he ordinarily steals 20 things a week. (laughs) But this week he only stole 10 things. (laughs) Do you say, good job, brother? You know, do you say, you. I mean, whatever you say, it has to be somewhat qualified, right? You can't be like, good for you. (laughs) That's right. So
1: there we've got an issue, I take it. I think when Singer talks about the public standard, he really is talking about the common standard for everyone. And I take it the analogy with theft you know the common standard for that all of us can be expected to uphold is something like don't steal at all although it might be true that in a particular person's case we need an even lower standard you know this person is working hard on their kleptomaniac problems and we want to encourage them rather than emphasize how much they're still failing I take it the analogy of the kleptomaniac would be something like, what if someone is just really psychologically extraordinarily stingy? They just find it extremely difficult to care about anyone but themselves. And so for that person to even give $50 is just psychologically as difficult as it is for an ordinary person to give thousands. How should we respond individually to that person? I think Singer, Singer is, is talking about the broader question. Okay, what's your the general public standard that we should expect most people to live up to? And it, it should be more demanding than that. I think you're right that they're interesting questions. I mean, in your conversation with Travis, I had sympathy with the question you were raising about... Okay, in the end, what does it mean for Singer to say that I ought to do this, right? I used to think it meant I'd be blameworthy if I failed to do it. But now, Singer, I agree. And you, because you know me from a lot of conversations, you know that I'm inclined to think that claims about what I ought to do, sh- we should tie to blameworthiness. So I think there is a real danger here of talking past one another that if Singer says, as he does praise and blame ought to connect to the public standard, but then he says, well, what you ought to do is something much more demanding, but you shouldn't feel guilty or you shouldn't hold others to that. You shouldn't feel guilty about failing to live up to it. There is a real danger of, okay, what does it mean now that I ought morally to do this? I do think there are still interesting possible answers. Singer can still say, after I've met the public standard of donating a few percent of my income, am I blameworthy? I take it Singer's view is no, I'm not. I shouldn't be blamed. Maybe I shouldn't even feel guilty. Am I fully morally justified in my behavior? No. Do I have morally good reason to do more? Yes, I do. But I do think your question does touch on an important issue. And this is something that utilitarians like Singer are vulnerable to, right? On the classical utilitarian view, right right action is action that
0: Is optimal. In fact, that only goes back as far as GE Moore explicitly. Okay. Okay. Sidgwick and Mill, I think both Mills, and I think Bentham as well, they were all less clear about this, but that's also partly because they didn't clearly distinguish rule and act utilitarianism, in my opinion.
1: Okay.
0: So... I think, though, they, they tend to say things, right actions, tend to promote utility. That's an annoying phrase for me. Like, what is, what is tend to tend to promote, tend to be conducive to? Yes.
1: Uh,
0: right. Tends to be conducive to my annoyance. <laughs> but I think once you clearly distinguish what act utilitarianism is, is satisfying just seems really weird. In the same way, it seems really weird to say that an omnipotent God would allow some gratuitous evil. Excuse me, an omnipotent? all-knowing, all-good God would allow some gratuitous evil that he could clearly make disappear at no cost, because that's the meaning of the word gratuitous. Why? If he's optimally good, wouldn't he? And it just seems like, yeah, why would you put the the bar for rightness any lower than, than the maximum? The only other way to go is, I think, with Alistair Norcross and just get rid of the whole notion of right action, and then you just have better and worse and that would neatly fix this problem that I'm pointing to. Yeah,
1: and, and in fact, I, I think it's right that if you start with G.E. Moore's view, maybe that's where to locate the kind of classical utilitarian view that right action is action that optimally promotes utility. You should move from that to Norcross's view that we should dispense with the notion of right action, just because it's so misleading to talk about. I mean, I think the disanalogy with the case of God is that God is a perfect being. It's understandable to expect God to do things that are optimal. Human beings are not optimal, (laughs) And we should expect human beings to behave suboptimally. So here's how I think it creates confusion. I think the danger is just a danger of talking past one another. So, for example, it's very commonly charged against classical utilitarianism that it's too demanding. And perhaps perhaps it, it is. But part of the reason that I think it seems too demanding is that the standard version of the theory defines wrong action as suboptimal action. But look, if you say almost every act in, in my life that I perform is wrong, that seems strange and counterintuitive. If you instead say, oh, by wrong, what I mean is morally suboptimal. Everything you do in your life is to some degree, even if it's to a very small degree, morally suboptimal. It's not clear that that's counterintuitive. Most people, I don't think, regard themselves as living morally perfect lives that could not be morally better.
0: That takes the teeth away from the whole argument, though, because because (laughs) if you say you've got to give all of this money to live a morally optimal life, people will say, "Okay, well, I'm not living a morally (laughs) optimal life. I'm planning on living a non-blameworthy life. That's okay. where, where the bar is.
1: Okay, I think that's right. And so it
0: does turn our attention
1: to this second issue of what should the public standard be? And I think I think it's actually reasonable to focus our attention there, maybe more than on this first question, what morally ought to do, exactly how demanding is morality, and what ought I to do because i think one of the things that has tended to not get quite as much attention in these philosophical debates as would have been justified again singer has this very demanding view and you know there are lots of attacks on that very demanding principle but there's a huge gap really large gap between The very demanding, probably utilitarian standard that Singer defends and the status quo that moderately wealthy people, on average, do almost nothing with regard to this problem. And I do think it makes sense to focus more attention on this second question of, what should the public standard be? I think it's interesting that the idea of a tie, the idea of 10%, to me is interesting that it's something I think you mentioned you've kind of settled on, it's more or less what I'm currently doing. It's not that that's going to be justified with some theoretical principle but it is interesting to me that different religious traditions and different individuals in their own lives have kind of settled on something like this practical answer of doing something significant even if it's not close to reaching the ideal and i think it is worth focusing more attention on that question just because there is so big a gap right i think it's important to realize that we shouldn't think the choice is singer's very demanding view or the current status quo. I'm doing almost nothing. There's a lot of room in between. And right. I think thinking about this question of the public standard focuses our attention on more that middle ground of, okay, how much,
0: how much should we
1: expect people
0: to, to, to do? Here's another case for you to think about. Abolitionism. So there was a time when abolitionists were happy, at least some of them were, I don't know if happy is the right word, but grateful enough at very modest concessions, like giving up shackles, commitments for people, don't punish your slaves in particularly gruesome and disgusting ways. There was one man in Barbados who wrote his will that he wanted... His slaves to be freed after his death, which boy is that ever a modest concession? You can you can stop being exploited by me when I'm dead. It doesn't sound like much of a concession at all, and yet it was a very important thing for Barbados because then you had this core group of freedmen,
1: yeah.
0: and and that really got the ball rolling. So what this guy did, consequentially, in Allowing his uh, slaves to be to be free after his death was like a huge, huge thing. And so, imagine you're an abolitionist, you're William Wilberforce or somebody like that. Do you think good for you? Yes, you're the man. You're the man. Or if you are yourself one of his slaves, would you? What would you think of that? It would. It would be weird to be grateful. For that kind of an action. It has to be described as having a kind of ambiguous moral status. What else can you say about it?
1: I think the analogy of slaveholding is a good one. And I agree that it's putting pressure on this view on defending that we pay more attention to the public standard and the practical consequences of trying to advocate and thinking about what will be the most effective means of advocating. On the one hand, I think the analogy of slaveholding is apt in giving a sense of the moral urgency. We want to say in the slaveholding case, look, even if as a matter of kind of movement building and even if as a matter of politics, we decided not to go out of our way to blame people, like I think Didn't George Washington Washington do the same thing? George Washington did this. And
0: actually, George Washington was limited in what he could do because almost all of his slaves belonged to the Custis estate. So he actually didn't have control over over many of them.
1: Okay, so you might say, look, what we want to acknowledge is that even if sort of we made a political decision, look, let's not go out of our way to blame people who do that because they're doing more... (laughs) more than most slaveholders are doing, and we should encourage that, we still want to recognize the moral urgency of going much farther in that and eliminating slavery entirely. And maybe Singer would uh, agree with that. And I do think Singer, it is fairly clear when he talks about people like Bill Gates. like He is fairly clear in those later chapters of the book. I think he writes some sentences that would make Bill Gates kind of wince a little bit. He says, yeah, Bill Gates is living a luxurious life. He could do
0: far, far more
1: than he's doing.
0: Yeah, I mean, he has that sentence about, yeah, he lives in a hundred million dollar house. Like, (laughs) whoop-de-doo.
1: Okay. No, I think you're right. There are issues to work out here, and maybe in the end there's something disconcerting maybe in the end we can't take a casual attitude toward Bill Gates or, and you know, filtering on down to the rest of us a casual attitude toward my paying for piano lessons for my kids or Disneyland vacations or beer money or whatever it it might be so yeah the analogy of slaveholding I think is useful in that regard. On the other hand I do think at least when I think about those historical cases I do want to be careful about shaking my finger at those people and morally taking a stance of blame toward them. It's not that I, that I renounce the idea of blaming them. In some cases, I wouldn't hesitate to do that. But I think one reason for focusing our attention on this question of the, the public standard, you know, when we look at historical cases of slaveholders... It does make sense, I think, to be careful about taking a certain kind of morally sneering attitude. Imagine a slaveholder who sees that something needs to be done in the direction of eliminating slaveholding, but we can see now didn't go nearly far enough. I do think it makes sense to be careful about holding a kind of just a, a kind of sneering moral attitude, well, that that person was, was terrible, just maybe slightly less morally appalling than everyone else. We have to realize that most of us would have likely done the same thing
0: and found it psychologically very difficult to do more. You couldn't just say be free slaves you had to do something called manumission which was a legal process and which cost money and you might not have all that much money even if you have this huge plantation part of your assets are your slaves and and, of course and a lot of slave owners thought that if they didn't show a, a really hard hand their slaves would kill them or other whites might kill them so i think it's true that when people Sneer at wrongdoers in the past, they often do not have a very clear picture about the difficult situations in which they found themselves.
1: Yeah, even while it's still true that we can now see, see in the case of slaveholding that, that the proper standard was il- elimination. And even though, though in the case of, uh, at least on Singer's view, the proper standard is the very demanding one that we, we morally ought to be doing a lot more than we are. But yeah, I do think it's a tricky question. I mean, this is a tricky question in the end for Singer's view. It's a tricky question for utilitarians. I think utilitarianism is so demanding in its high standard. I think Singer is honest in clarifying that he doesn't live up to the standard or even close. I don't think anyone else does either. So if you are inclined toward utilitarianism or some other kind of very demanding standard, the same kinds of questions I think would arise for, say, certain kinds of Christians who hold a a very demanding standard of morality. If you are inclined to adopt a very demanding standard of morality that humans just can be expected never to live up to or even close, then you face really interesting questions about how do you live your life day to day with the fact how do you orient yourself day to day with your continual failure to live up to that higher
0: standard? Christianity is a good example, right? Because <laughs> because I think it's even something Jesus says where he's got, okay. Lower There's the lower law and the higher law, and the higher law is give away all of your possessions and abandon your family and follow me. I mean, he's he's demanding more than even Singer, Uh, and Singer is happy to point such things out. But yeah, so it's interesting that how does it feel to be a utilitarian who is living the lower standard but not the higher standard? Give over your possessions and follow Singer. You know, I've never had a chance to talk to Singer about this. And, and I, I don't think he talks a lot about it
1: himself. But my, my sense is that Singer's attitude is he's not wrapped with guilt. Right? He, he's not even, as far as I can tell, that interested in issues of blame and resentment but I think it is, is something, as someone, you know, I'm inclined toward utilitarianism myself, and it is something that I think is morally complicated about being inclined toward utilitarianism. It's hard to figure out how to orient yourself. Like, how do I orient myself to the fact that I've spent thousands of dollars on things I don't need And that has probably cost people's lives. On the one hand, it probably doesn't promote utility for me to spend all day, every day, obsessing about my moral failures. On the other hand, it seems wrong to just dismiss it as unimportant, since the theory takes it to be, right, important.
0: And also, it's, it's somewhat worse than that, because <laughs> it's not just the fact that you haven't, it's, the, it's the, the anticipation that you're going to continue doing this into the future. That's right. Uh, you know, no, I think what this is showing is that
1: utilitarianism has things in common with certain strains of traditional Christianity, where, yeah, the traditional Christian view of morality, I take it, is an extraordinarily very high standard. We know you're not going to meet it. So I think, for example, in the Catholic tradition, right? Uh, You know, I didn't grow up Catholic, so I've never been to confession. But you go to confession and you confess. Like, they expect you to come back. Like, they know you're going to come back. They know you're going to come back. You You are going to fail to meet this standard. But it still is the moral standard. Like, you are failing. And I think there's something similar about the utilitarian view like this is the standard at least in some sense this is the moral ideal it is a very high standard you are going to fail to meet it and maybe utilitarians need some version of confession where they can you know confess their failures and then you know i take it the part of the purpose of confession is to help you sort of set aside feelings of guilt that would get in the way of actually living living better. So,
0: you know, the thing that, that Singer will say
1: is don't obsess so much with the fact that you're failing morally that you end up failing even more than you otherwise would. Like, don't obsess with that sort of, Moral failure. And that's where it can help, for example, to console yourself by saying, Well, I'm meeting a public standard and I'm doing something. And so I think that can be helpful. But yeah, I think this is a complication for utilitarianism. I think that's right.
0: One complaint that is sometimes leveled against modern moral philosophy and modern philosophy in general is that it's detached from practice in a certain way. Even normative ethics, normative supposedly meaning action guiding, and yet in the most fundamental questions, the dominant moral theory appears not to give you guidance about your own life in this really fundamental way. In Christianity, there is an entire structure. It's not just here's a set of beliefs, now now go figure it out. Here are the syllogisms, <laughs> Premise one, Christ is Lord. Yeah, yada, yada, yada. Conclusion, Yeah, you're a sinner and you must repent. <laughs> no, there's like, the, there there is this sense of community, that there are congregations, there are rituals that are tailored to be the sort of things that can resonate with human beings, given their psychological makeup. There's nothing like that with utilitarianism. I think, though, that if effective altruism is going to keep developing as a project, they're going to need to add some of these things, borrow from religion, learn from religion where you can. And it just seems to me that giving this, like, here's this view and here's this this abstract standard that's impossible for you to meet and no one will will blame you if you don't meet it. Okay, now good luck. And that just seems like a, like a completely futile thing, but it suggests that, that there are ways that this could be filled out. You could create like a community that's dedicated to this in a way that religious congregations are. I think that's right. And I mean, I think my sense is that the effective
1: altruist community is trying to do some of these kinds of things. And I don't know at all what the best way of proceeding is. But yeah, I think that's exactly right. That in some sense, we should be trying to deal with the features of the current situation that make it psychologically so difficult. And again, this, this applies to the situation of meat eating as well. Right. I found it really difficult to convert to being entirely vegan And I think we should be trying to deal with the cultural circumstances that make it so difficult and that deserves focus as well.
0: Right. And what's difficult about veganism, I found this too, I'm sure this is the same with you, is that it's the living with other people and the cultural and the social aspect of it. That's right. You, you have to think about making
1: compromises with people you live with who may not hold the same views as you do. And then when you're traveling, you have to make complicated decisions. And there's just the, the lack of community, or at least you might find yourself in an area where you don't have people around. You have tr- traditions like Thanksgiving, which mostly involve meat eating. And so you have those cultural factors. And I think it's right that in some sense, one of the things that effective altruism has tried to do, maybe you could argue they put too much focus on this. I mean, effective altruists, I take it, are very concerned about animal suffering, but they tend not to focus very much on what each of us should consume whether each of us should eat meat or not they do tend to be much more interested on for example pressuring mcdonald's to make adjustments to the kinds of eggs they use you know not from caged hens and i take it part of the idea is there you're just going to make much more utilitarian progress dealing with those big cultural factors than you are trying to evangelize at an individual level, one by
0: one. Do you have anything else to add?
1: No, it's been really an interesting and wide-ranging discussion, and I really enjoyed your discussion with Travis. And again, I want to emphasize, Travis's paper is really good, and so anyone who's teaching Singer's article should be teaching that one alongside it.
0: All right. Thanks so much, Jim.